Welcome to Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast about entrepreneurship-led economic development. Here is your host, David Ponraj, founder and CEO of Economic Impact Catalyst. All right. So, Diane, tell us a little bit about the Idaho Women's Business Center, and let's start there. Great. Thank you, David. So the Idaho Women's Business Center is actually about ready to celebrate their third year anniversary. Um, Idaho has had debt women business centers in the past, but they just, you know, they, they weren't sustainable. And so we're excited that we're only, we're still babies, David. We're just three years in on our project. Um, but it is the mission of the, of the Women's Business Center to serve all cultures and communities. And, you know, we add communities in there because we're an 85% rural state. So we know that when we leave our, you know, our homes that, you know, a lot of our small business owners are husband and wife teams. So even though we're the women's business center, we love to serve. We love to serve the guys too. I was at the state of the Idaho business center, women's business center event. It was amazing. The amount of people, I think that was like my first after COVID event that I traveled to in over two years. It was fantastic. So tell us your secret behind how do you pull the community together? Because our practitioners are doing similar work, but the energy that you brought on is fantastic. Yeah, I think you have to go back to where the story began. And it goes back even before the Women's Business Center, when I was asked as a non-Hispanic that doesn't speak Spanish to come on board as the first um, CEO for the Idaho Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. And so I knew that even, and that was, you know, six years ago, that I needed to find a way to connect with all diverse communities. And when you think about Idaho, I don't think people automatically think diversity. You know, it's 85% rural, it's um, 12% Hispanic, it's 1% Black community. And so our minds don't automatically think that it's a diverse community. However, you're right. When I host an event, I, I exceed all percentages across our entire state in gathering um, everyone together. Yeah, there was just such great energy. I know that you've, since you've come on, you've done such amazing, amazing work that we're going to get into. But before that, I want to know what got you into this work in the first place? What's your background? In, what's your inspiration to do this work? Yeah, so I grew up in a very small town in Oklahoma that even in the 80s was still very, um, oh, how do I say this? It was pretty much there was a white side of the town and a black side of the town and they never crossed over. And I had a very awareness as a young child of what racism was. And so I've kind of made it my life goals to always bridge those gaps of inequities, no matter what the race, culture, community, ethnicity, all the, all across the board. And so that's kind of my, my why, but I've also been an entrepreneur for a lot of my professional career, um, from everything from interior design to owning a wedding event center to owning two retail prom and bridal stores. So I love everything about people and business. So I've always been super engaged with chambers of commerce. My mom ran our chamber of commerce in our little small town of 5,000 people. I think that my first picture in the newspaper, I was four years old at a ribbon cutting for a doctor's office. So I've, I've been exposed to what you can do when you can take what you love, um, either develop or have an innate skill to do something that someone will pay money for. 
And so everything about commerce excites me and it has, you know, so I've been on both sides of it. And uh, one of the things I love so much about serving the Women's Business Center and the Hispanic community in Idaho is I love seeing new businesses start and grow and thrive. And sometimes it, the difference in a successful business and not is, can be one connection, which I know that we'll talk about a little bit. I have to say the story at this point, and so that it's officially on record. I have been following you for over two years, and I told you this, like on LinkedIn, how amazing you've been and uh, how dynamic your content is on how you connect people, how you tell your story. Uh, and when I found out that you were scheduled to speak with us, I was like, oh, finally, we've, you know, I'm speaking with Diane. And then the call got canceled. And I was like, I'm going to call her right now to see, you know, why she canceled. And, uh, and I think, you know, that was uh, the, the starting point of our work together that, you know, we're looking forward to telling the story in a few months. Uh, but that kind of dynamism that you bring to the world of nonprofit I think uh, we, when we see it, it brings like fresh perspective, right? This idea of uh, it's not a zero-sum game that everybody can benefit. Can you talk a little bit about your community and how you've been able to pull people together, like come into WBC? What was it like before you joined and, and, and how far you've taken it? And then I want to get into the programs after that. That's a great question. And one I've given some thought of because it's quite often that I'll get an email or a text connect that says, everyone tells me to connect with you, Diane. And so I'm like, oh, you know, I'm the, I'm, I have become the, the ecosystem builder. But, you know, they kind of go back to like, if you build it, they will come, right? If you say it, it will happen. I think for me, it goes back to that confidence that I stood in the rotunda of our capital in front of our governor and our senators. And when I launched the Women's Business Center, I looked at every one of them and I said, I will build the largest ecosystem the state has ever seen. And I said it and I meant it. And the reason you have to put your ego aside, you have to put aside like the, you know, even the drive for the money side of a nonprofit. And you just have to focus on the mission and the good and the rest just follows. And, you know, I don't have to always be on the stage. I love to be on the stage, but I also love to put other people on the stage. And I think that when you can go into, especially nonprofit work, because, you know, David, every nonprofit is fundraising, every nonprofit. And I have a lot of community partners that I'll have meetings with and I'll say, you know what, I am not going to ask you for money for today. I know you would give it to me, but I also am very mindful that you need to support a lot of other organizations. So when I am at that point that I really absolutely need it, that's when I'll make the ask. And I think that coming at it with that mindset of I understand that I am a small part of a really big project. And a really, really big project is growing the economic impact of the state that I live in. And so when you keep that thought in your mind of it's not always going to be about me and you want to give first and, and pay forward, I, I don't know. I think that that's a really long answer for you, David, but that's kind of where, that's kind of my why. Yeah. And we're going to get a little bit you know deeper into that in a second. Can we talk about your programs, uh, the Key Bank Mentorship Program, also the Community Navigator Program? A lot of our practitioners are somehow involved either as a spoke or a hub or are a technical assistance provider that's benefiting from it. Can you speak to the award that you won? How are you doing? And from everything we've heard, you're still like a trailblazer in even implementing it. 
Yeah, we are. You know, um, we're very proud of the fact that we're the only uh, women's business center that that was awarded as a hub under the Community Navigators Pilot Program. And to just talk about that for a second, you know, to be able to bring $2.5 million to your state is huge for us. And when I decided to apply for that grant, I thought, you know, I know they're going to give one to every state or send some way. And if no one else is going to apply, then I'm going to go for it. But I think that part of it for us is, is, and you talk about programs and the key bank mentorship program is I believe that everyone needs a mentor and at some point should be a mentor. And we've kind of taken that approach with the navigators grant as well, because we are mentoring our spokes. And we are teaching them how to mentor their community. We see a whole different vision on this project because our goal is to make sure at the end when it sunsets that they can all go after their own big federal grants. And so when you talk about mentorship, it's so key to the to success. You know, you can't know it all and it's okay to ask for help. And so that's kind of like one of our biggest things. And that's what we love about working with you, David, and with EIC and and the mentorship ability to connect not only our clients, but now we're connecting on these other programs and other projects that, that we're spearheading. The Community Navigator program that you won, one thing that was really interesting was how you brought in even the Native American uh, tribes to be on that uh, uh, program and how much it's gonna impact their work, right? That's also unique in how you designed it and ultimately the community navigator program was to build these trusted relationships on the ground and serve the underrepresented community, right? So how is that going with, with the outreach into uh, the Native American communities? You know, I think that there's not anyone listening on this call that will argue that the Native American communities have had a lot of barriers. They've had a lot of barriers for a really long time. And so to be able to do a project with our tribes, you have to first build trust and you have to build respect. And you also have to not, not do what you say you're going to do. They've had a lot of promises broken to them over time. We all know that. It's no secret. Um, last year during COVID, we just the Women's Business Center felt really inspired to reach out and start engaging with women that were uh, making beadery. They were doing artistic creations. And we created the Idaho Native American Women Business Alliance. And we said, look, there's five tribes here. We want to have a relationship with all of them. We want to create this movement or this opportunity for women. So that's actually where it started, because I think had we not done that a year ago, we wouldn't have even listed them in the Navigator Grant. But we already had these relationships developed and they allowed our team to go on the reservation and we had kickoff events for the Women Alliance. We had drum ceremonies. The council spoke. And, and it's been a really great experience for us, as you know, and because uh, you follow me so much on LinkedIn, that, I, that I've spent a lot of time on our reservations here lately. And I think that um, I appreciate you bringing that up because I think that all organizations uh, can't do enough to really remember that there are small business owners that actually don't see themselves as entrepreneurs and uh, amazing things can happen when you expose them to just, you know, a little bit of learning. Can I ask you one question about how do you build great teams? Because you also have a great team behind you, which every great leader has a great team, 
Uh, and so I want to go back to talking about the underrepresented community, but I want to take a break and kind of get your thought around how do you get uh, Susie and how do you get all the other Shelly and Debbie and how do you get like this amazing team? Every time I see your team, there's like more new people that are doing great work. What is the secret to uh, to inspiring people? And I'm sure, you know, nonprofits are not paying like corporate America, right? So there has to be a sense of mission and a sense of purpose. How do you bring, attract great talent and keep them? You know, that's, that's, isn't that the, the magical question? Because I think everyone right now is trying to figure out how to keep and retain their talent. You know, um, unemployment rates have never been lower. And when you're a small business owner, you know, you've got to, you don't want to keep expending what it costs to train a new employee and then only to have to start over. Uh, for me, again, it's back to the servant leadership side, you know, like you just mentioned it, you know, you have to have a buy-in to the mission and want to do the work, even if you weren't getting paid for it. And I think that that's really been a great source for us to really vet out the right people that love the miracle of connections and the programs that we run, um, but also the success we've had. Had we not continually had the snowball effect of additional programs, we wouldn't have grown from three people to 12 people in only a course of about 24 months. So our team has grown. Another thing that's a little bit unique about us, and it's a sacrifice that our team makes, we are not all in one office. I have our team sprinkled out over the entire state of Idaho, Several of them work in offices all by themselves. And it's because we know we have to be where our clients are. We need to be where they live, where they run their businesses. I think there's a maximum distance that women will drive for help. And it's not very far because of children and, and schedules and things like that. So our team is in a lot of, we're in five different offices, actually. That's amazing. And still, you got to keep them all together uh, and, and, you know, make sure that they're mentored and they're taken care of and they're trained and onboarded. Uh, talk to us a little bit about your Latinx women and the mentorship program you have for them. I got to meet a few of them at the uh, State of the Idaho Women's Business Center event. Tell us a little bit about that program, uh, how you're trying to impact their businesses, what does success look like? So about 50% of my team is bilingual. Part of that's because I'm the CEO of the Hispanic Foundation, right? So even though we serve all women, we put a primary focus on the Hispanic community, for sure. Um, we wanted to, we started with creating a Mujer, a Mujer Unidas, you know, and then we realized we weren't really connecting with as many Hispanic women as we wanted. We changed it to the Latinas Network and called our Vince Amigas Let's Chat and, and it immediately overnight uh, we really had to identify who our avatar was and who was that business owner, what each category she was. Does she speak English and Spanish? Does she do business in English but prefer Spanish? And what we've also found is that, of course, Vicky, you know, Vicky and Susie both have such a great background in teaching. Their desire to teach in Spanish is so amazing that they've created some great entrepreneurial education that is taught in both English and Spanish. So I think that for us, it was to really listen to our clients and then identify, our, does a Latina entrepreneur look at the Idaho women's business and say, that's for me, I belong there. And if she doesn't, we had to identify why. Is it because we were not hitting our mark? And so I will tell you, David, we've done a lot of work, just a lot of 
boots on the ground work to understand and continually understand how we can do that better. You know, you should write like a, a playbook because another thing that I noticed uniquely about your uh, address that was different from, and you know, all of June I'm traveling, I'm in a conference every single week uh, and I get to see this around the country. What I loved also was the data element that you brought in, that you actually had run a survey to understand what their needs were. And can you speak a little to the, the data-driven approach? Because I think that's something that a lot of nonprofits need to understand. And, and it's one of the secrets of how successful you've been in fundraising, right? Part of storytelling is the data story because, you know, you can get people to cry, but if you can tell them the numbers, then they're going to sit up and listen to you. Yeah, I decided to do an impact survey um, with our clients because I needed to not only understand who they were, but also the communities. Are they in a community of a thousand people or a hundred thousand people? And then really comparing their answers. And it was interesting because I think that maybe it's because we were during the pandemic, but the voices wanted to be heard. So we got a great sampling of survey responses in a short amount of time. Like we, most surveys, as you know, David, you run for several weeks at a time. Within seven days, we had, you know, over a hundred responses. But the most interesting data that we found was that at least in Idaho, which is all I can speak on today, but over 65% of our clients are either 50% uh, contributors to their, their household income, but over 35% were 100%. So if a third of our clients, every dollar they make running their business is also paying their rent and their childcare and their grocery bill, we need to be mindful of that in our deliverables. When do we host our classes? And we started hosting some of our six-week entrepreneurial education at 7 a.m. in the morning. Like I see, you're right. I do have an amazing team. They will teach. Thea Jordan will teach at 7 a.m. in the morning. And uh, because she knew that that's when, when people needed to be in those classes. And so, yeah, we, there were some great questions I had on there. One of them was, you know, what would it mean if your business went out of business? You know, what impact would that have on your community? And it was interesting how many the answers that we got from those, and I'm happy to share that data and you can share it, you know, in your, in your media. But we did ask a lot of those questions, like, why are they in business to create jobs, to support their family, to help their community. And the data was, uh, it was pretty impressive. I love that practical approach to everything you do, even to how you give me your answers. It's very practical. It's like, you know, we do this because it drives specific outcome, uh, versus, uh, for all the other fluff that goes with it, right? Like, uh, asking questions around how much of you, how much of income supports your family. I think eventually that might also show uh, median income, which can then help us understand the size of the micro loans, right? And bringing in Kiva or bringing in, uh, I know that from rural Lisk, uh, we had uh, Kate there as well uh, with some of the work that she's been doing for you. Uh, I think that data becomes like the underlying foundation to go and, and do this uh, meaningful work. Uh, talk to me uh, just a little bit about uh, what are some secrets to good fundraising? Uh, that's another thing that a lot of our practitioners struggle with. And for you, it seems almost natural uh, <laughs> to be able to uh, raise money. What's the secret? And, you know, is it the relationships? It's the skills you were born with? Is it things you've learned along the way? What's the secret? Well, I think that you just basically explained it all right there. It, it is definitely the relationship because quite often people will send me a note and they say, how do I fundraise? You know, I, cause you're right. There's portals all over the internet for different grants, you know, thousands of nonprofits apply for them. 
very few get funded. And but it, the secret is really getting the invitation to apply. Because once you get that invitation from someone at that business that you've already created a relationship, so basically they're inviting you to apply for $25,000. As long as you don't miss the deadline and get all the documents they're asking for, that's an automatic yes. So then your investment of time is much less for and has a greater return. But then, you know, I can sum it up in one sentence. Ivan Castillo, who's the chairman of our foundation board, he said to me years ago, he says, you know, Diane, life's simple. You just got to do what you say you're going to do. And when you think about that, it's, and especially with grants, if you have to do what you say you're going to do, but you also have to do something that, that provides metrics. So it's kind of like a, it's a visual piece for me. When I wrote the grant for the community navigator, I could visualize what that project looked like before I ever wrote the grant. And if I were to give some advice um, to your listeners, and, and they said, I don't even know where to start. How do I write a grant for my nonprofit? You have to create a program of interest that's going to be of interest to your funder. So do your homework. If you have a grant with a community foundation, go to their website, read their mission statement. What's important to them? Because that's where they want to spend their money. And if what's important to them is XYZ and somehow you know that either a program you currently have or one you've been thinking about, you have to tailor that application so that when they're reading it, they're already saying, wow, that grant is exactly what we're looking to fund. And that's super important. So if you don't have a relationship, you have to at least do your homework and you have to speak to your audience. And it's no different than with our clients and the surveys that you talk about. If we don't listen to who our clients are and where they are, then we can't design programs that they're going to be interested in. Because you know, you can create the greatest programs in the world, but if no one participates, then you missed your mark. And you have to figure out how and why. That's that's fantastic. Uh, in terms of the after you receive the grant and you're implementing it, what are some things you do, which is also you've been really good at, not just raising the money, but then actually putting the programs in place quickly, getting it ramped up uh, off the ground. Uh, in some cases, like an entrepreneur bootstrapping things together while you're waiting for funding. Can you talk to us of like one of the programs you've launched? Okay, now that you've applied for the grant and you've got the funding, how do you make sure that that grant then becomes like a, a grant where you hit the metrics and you get that money back? Or like in a pilot program, you've proven the pilot and now you're going to get a sustaining uh, grant. How do you do that? How do you uh, become an effective executor of that vision you've written? You know, for me, David, I challenge myself with every grant application to almost commit in the tech proposal. This is what I will do in the first 30 days. This is what I will do in the first 60 days and 90 days and 180 days. And then once you win, you've already got your recipe. You just now have to bake the cake. Right. You've already aligned out. Here's what our mission is and here's what our, what we're going to do. Now, you made the comment about awaiting funding. Well, if if you've anyone that's been in nonprofit world for very long, when you apply for a grant portal, you know, you're not going to see the money for three to four months in federal world, federal grant world. You need to be you need to be executing even before you see the funding. So you just kind of have to have faith. Sometimes you need a line of credit from your bank because spending a burn rate is a talent. 
it is such a talent to stay on top of the, and when I speak about burn rate, for those that don't know, that monthly spending, right? So here's the things we have to spend. Here's the, the needs, the wants, the have to haves, need to haves, nice to haves. And so you really have to be super strategic about the timing of your spending. A lot of grants have um, a heavy end spend in the first 90 days because they need to buy software. Like we purchased yours, right, with EIC. And so you know you're going to have that heavy end. So then maybe what you want to do is even though you know you're going to have some new hires, maybe you delay one of your new hires by a month or two so that your burn rate balances out. And uh, there's, and it, it, you don't get good at it overnight. There's just a lot of really keeping track of, um, of what you say you're going to do. And then just going back to what, what made you win. And then you just have to do it. Obviously, there's always pivots. But for the most part, I stay really true to um, my proposals. Do you think that uh, the Community Navigator program, pilot program, is here to stay uh, just based on what you've seen, the impact it's having? Do you, you feel like, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot uh, to predict the future, and I know it's varied success across the country, but in your own community, maybe it's not the same proposal and not the same funding source, but the impact that you're already seeing in connecting all of the spokes and then, like you said, you know, elevating them, uh, where do you see this program going? Well, for me, Idaho is going to continue the Idaho Community Navigator regardless of SBA funding. It is such a great model. I will have to compliment the SBA on the hub and spoke model. I've, I've actually duplicated it in a couple of other things because when you can take a hub that already has some grants management experience and you can sub-award funds that create jobs, I think we created like a job at every one of our spokes just by giving them funding. And it also shows the miracle of what money can do, truly. It takes money to make money, but it also takes money to do good work. And, and the ability to sub-award out to these nonprofits has just been beautiful. But, you know, my folks know that for me, you know, I'm going to do everything in my power to secure funding for it to continue. But in order to do that, we have to have a story to tell, which involves metrics. <laughs> exactly. It's all like one big circle. Also, I think money... Strengthen those strengthens those relationships because you know uh, it's that that the fact that nobody's ever trusted them enough to actually invest in their communities and have them as a spoke and bring them along. I think, uh, of course, the the hires on their end, but also the fact that somebody's you know saying, "Hey, you're worthy enough that you'll be part of the money that we're raising." I think that builds that long term trust. Oh, yeah, we've seen the beauty of that. The Idaho Black Community Alliance actually was created for the grant. Um, that was part of the grant application. And I challenged the CEO and founder to 100 Black business owners in the first year, and she had 70 in the first month and a half. You know, there's such a need for what we provide, and we've already seen the miracle of the funding. And uh, I think that that will continue for us. You know, even with the tribes, just teaching, teaching our folks how to do outreach how to build their own ecosystem. We don't even care if they ever mention our program because at the end, we want their program to elevate because of our efforts behind the scenes. Of So we support them all with, the, with certified counselors. We do all their counseling. We help them with marketing. Like if you think about this, David, if you have a nonprofit that just starts and they have one director, they have one employee, maybe they have a few volunteers. You put them on a grant like the Hub and Spoke model. Now they have an entire team behind them. They have someone for marketing, accounting, 
for program development and they don't have to pay for it. They can just go out and identify an outreach within a, their own diverse community and bring people to the table. And then the hub comes in like this Calvary yeah. and just wraps around them. And it's, it's a beautiful grant. I, you know, kudos to the SBA for that. Yeah. And I remember the CEO or the executive director of that, uh, that black group come on stage and speak. It was fantastic, you know, and just the vision behind it and how uh, it is truly a diverse program that you've created, right? You've said, you know, I want to go and touch all the communities uh, that represent Idaho. So I think even in that sense, it's brilliant. I can't wait to see the metrics out of this program of just how many people have been touched and how many people have become part of this. And like you said, like then created, use that capacity to go build on their own, right? Because right. you don't have to go raise money for that group so they can use that group to say, okay, I've got 40 hours a week. What other grants can we apply for? What other programs can we go and do and uh, just create this multiplier effect of this one uh, award that you won? So what's next for the Idaho Women's Business Center? I was going to ask what's next for Diane. I'll save that for the last question. Where do you see the Women's Business Center five years from now? Like, you know, are you looking at like national programs? Like, where is this headed? You know, I think that I know that you have listeners all over, all over the U.S., all over the globe. And, uh, you know, when you ask someone what they think about Idaho, they first say Iowa, Ohio. You know, we, we are kind of that, that state that a lot of people don't know a lot about. But I can tell you in SBA world, we're kind, we are kind of the pilot. We've launched a lot of innovative programs, the podcast. We've launched the mentorship program, which we already talked about. And that's given us a lot of notoriety. So when you say what's next about the WBC, I'm really hoping that the Senate will do the right thing and vote through the bill that's currently out there to uh, double the cap, which will grow all women's business centers. And so kind of depending on that, it'll depend on how fast we can launch and grow. But we're certainly not done yet. I think that, uh, you know, in my perfect world, we, in, we have even more offices in satellite. We have two people deep in every office. Um, we can continue really running multi-million dollar budgets because of additional funding. So, yeah, I uh, we're just barely getting warmed up. And what about Diane? Like, where do you see? So you came in, you've kind of conquered it all. Uh, you know, what's uh, 10 years from now? Let's say 10 years from now, you know, what's next for you? Like, you know, other than the WBC, what else do you have in your vision? You know, I think that probably what next for me is to really helping grant writing and helping other nonprofits know how to to confidently go after some that they are that are big. You know, I think that being a good grant writer is not just someone that can manage spreadsheets and budgets. You have to be a visionary and you have to see what if, but what if we could do that? And then really visualizing that program and process. So I think for me, long-term is I'd like to help other nonprofits see the same kind of success that we've opened doors for where we're at today. So if our practitioners want to list, uh, to reach out to you, can they uh, go through LinkedIn or through your website and reach out and ask for guidance or help? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, are, I do get asked quite a bit on, you know, what's the secret to writing a successful grant? And you have to already know what you would do with the money if it was already sitting in front of you in a check. And, uh, and so that's kind of what I walk through um, clients with. But yeah, absolutely. They can reach out to me through LinkedIn. That's, that would be great. Okay. So and then 
we'll do like an update podcast maybe six months or eight months from now after this like metrics from the first year of the pilot program would love for you to come back i think you're gonna have so many fantastic stories not just the data but even people's lives that have changed uh and people that have been transformed uh from this program so we'll love to have you back we are such huge fans of your work uh thank you so much for being here uh, and we look forward to continuing this journey and, and tracking your story thank you david i look forward to it Thanks for listening to this episode of Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast about entrepreneurship-led economic development. Special thanks to our renowned guests for joining us. You can find show notes, more episodes, send us ideas, and subscribe to our newsletter on our website, economicimpactcatalyst.com. Breaking Down Barriers is a presentation of Economic Impact Catalyst and is edited by Lauren Bernard. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Breaking Down Barriers, available for free wherever you listen to your